Hello and welcome everybody. This is a new episode of Africa is a Country Talk. If you don't know who I am, I'm Will Shorky, streaming from Johannesburg, South Africa, and I'm joined by, as always by my wonderful co-presenter, Sean Jacobs, who is in Brooklyn, New York. AIAC Talk, which you should know by now, is a weekly talk and interview show. We broadcast every Tuesday at 8 p.m. if you're in Dar es Salaam, 5 p.m. if you're in Dakar, or 6 p.m. if, like me, you are in Johannesburg. And our show is produced, as always, by the magnificent Antoinette Engel, who is in Cape Town, South Africa. And this is episode 31, or it's episode 32. I think at this point, we like to keep it ourselves. Episode 32. Let's let's settle on that. Let's commit to it next week. Is let's commit to it. Next week, we'll... Uh, false... Uh, we're like for, for fake news. Okay. The, we don't even have <laughs> okay. On today's show, um, we discuss the Arab Spring, uh, or the so-called Arab Spring. It's been 10 years since the Arab Spring began as a protest movement in North Africa and the Middle East, transforming the region and ushering in an era of so social upheaval that is still with us today. And our guests to explore what the Arab Spring was all about, how much longer the revolution will remain deferred, and why we did not see a political spring to the south of the Sahara, uh, Nihal uh, El Asar, an Egyptian independent researcher currently based in London, and uh, Zakaria Mampili, who co-authored the 2015 book, Africa Uprising, Popular Protests and Political Chains. And Zakaria is based at Baruch College um, in New York City. They're both on Twitter uh, at NotNihal and at Ras underscore Karia. And if you missed our show last week, first of all, last week's show was episode 30, and this week's show is episode 31. Our producer has very helpfully informed us of the correct number. And last week's show explored South Africa's apartheid murders of political activists. We interviewed the director, Enver Samuel, of the new documentary, Murder in Paris, about the life of the activist, Dulcie September, which screened on Sunday, if you missed it. And it's gonna screen again next week, Sunday. That was gonna be part two of the documentary. And we were also joined by Evelyn Hrunig, who's the author of the book, Incorruptible, the story of the murders of Dulcie September, Anton Lebowski and Chris Heine. And later in that episode, we were also joined by Madeleine Fullard, the head of South Africa's Missing Persons Task Team, which looks for the remains of murdered liberation fighters. And clips from that episode are available on our YouTube channel if you want to catch up. But as usual, best check out the whole thing on our Patreon, along with all of the episodes in our archive. So in a few minutes, we will welcome our first guest. Um, but first, we want to highlight two landmarks um, of the last week, uh, both dealing, unfortunately, with death again, which seems to be the prevailing ethos uh, these days, uh, right, Will? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, quite a shocking announcement that came out of Tanzania on Wednesday about the passing of President John Magufuli, who died at 61 years of age. He had been missing for some time, and there were reports that he was receiving treatment in Kenya, other reports that he was receiving treatment in India. Most people suspected that he had been infected with COVID, but I think most people also expected that he was going to recover as Boris Johnson did when he got it, as Donald Trump when he got it, as Boris, as, as Bolsonaro did when he got it, but then he passed away. And I think it's it's a tragic event. A lot of Tanzanians are deeply mourning what has happened, are deeply saddened by his passing. 
But I think that, especially given that we are reflecting on the legacy of the Arab Spring today, we have the opportunity to reflect on the legacy of President Magufuli, which I think reveals a lot about the nature of, of post-colonial African politics. And when thinking about Magufuli's legacy, when he came to power in 2015, he basically began on pretty much a hopeful note. So he was this corruption-busting resource nationalist, but after the five years of which he was in power, he ended his rule as an authoritarian COVID-19 denialist. And I think that his presidency in many ways simply replayed a leadership script which is seemingly written into post-liberation Africa, which is step one, appropriate anti-colonial rhetoric to indigenize capitalism. Step two, make modest redistribution to the masses. And step three, weaponize all of this to consolidate the regime's power. And then all of those seemingly progressive policies that you've put forward start to unravel. And as it concerns us today, this is exactly the script that the Arab Spring tried to challenge. So when thinking about Magufuli's legacy in particular, I think that a lot of people have acknowledged that it's a very mixed legacy. There's a lot of, there's some good and there's also a lot of bad. But I think personally that I've been kind of surprised by just how swift the hagiography has been. And I think that what that reveals is that we're still kind of trapped in this false dichotomy between development and economic self-determination on the one hand, which everybody says Magufuli espoused till the very end, and then democracy and political self-determination on the other hand, which Magufuli brutally repressed. And what I think is that a lot of people are ignoring is that towards the end of his first term and in the beginning of the second term, which he, he barely got to, to preside over, a lot of his policies were starting to unravel. I mean, they, they probably weren't going to survive the coming confrontation with global capital that he set up. And what I think this is a lesson in is that the only way you can implement radical reform is if you build a popular base capable of withstanding capital's backlash. And the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, that Tanzania's working class, just like the working class elsewhere in the world, is weak and disorganized. So I think that the ultimate lesson is this, that whether or not you're a Democrat, populism is no substitute for mass democratic power if you want to win. And one person who I think is really instructive on this point is the late and great Walter Rodney. And as it just so happens, today is also his birthday. He was born in 1942 in Guyana. And Rodney in 1978 had been delivering lectures at the University of Hamburg. And he was preparing to write his seminal text, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And he was reflecting on his experience in Tanzania. He spent some time at the University of Dar es Salaam. And he made an observation about the role of Julius Nerere and the Liberation Party, which he represented, which was the Tanganyika African National Union, which is a precursor to Chama Chama Pinduzi, which is the, the, the ruling party at this moment. And what he said then is that, my feeling is that in spite of all the rhetoric, Tanu has not been transformed, that it remains a nationalist party under the control of the petit bourgeoisie incapable of providing the basis for sustained socialist transformation. And he went on further to say that, it is important to recognize that it fits within the general pattern, which we have been discussing so far, by which the colonization process ended through an alliance of classes. But within this alliance, the workers and the peasants 
never really had hegemony. And he was right then and he is right now. And as always, the question that we confront in every episode of the show is, what is to be done about that? Right, uh, as, they, as, they, as they used to say in South Africa, before, probably before you were alive, well, Bua Komanisi. Bua, Bua Komanisi. Speak communism. Exactly. People are not, like, well, it's not a, I don't know what will, whether Will's a communist or not. In any way, uh, in any case, now, basically, um, as we are talking out of spring, um, it's also worth marking the, the passing of the Egyptian feminist writer, activist, and medical doctor, uh, Nawal Al Sadawi who at 89 uh, passed away on Sunday, and I'll be quick, on politics in Egypt, post-Arab Spring, she actually said, uh, we got rid of the head only, but the body of the regime is still there, militarily, economically, in the media, in education, everything. But as someone also, and, and that's, you know, that's a great sentiment from her, with many other quotes, go look at our Twitter. But one of the things that people did point out to us on Twitter is that Nawal al-Sadawi was also very supportive and tolerant of Egypt's current junta, because from her vantage point, you know, they went after the Muslim Brotherhood, who she didn't like as a feminist. Um, and I think this is kind of, you know, to Will's earlier point about sort of Walter Rodney's sentiment about class politics. I think similarly, I think what we get out of out of uh, out of sort of Nawal uh, al-Sadawi's life is this kind kind of complexity that you have people from the left. Who had who has no problem uh, with uh, with with CC um, running Egypt? So that's the complexity which we hope that we could capture um, in today's uh, in today's uh, discussion uh, with our two guests. And speaking of today's discussion with our two guests, before we invite them on, a reminder to all of you to please hit the like and subscribe button below for our YouTube, as well as follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please, please, please subscribe to our Patreon, where you can access all of the episodes on Africa's a Country Talks archive, as well as help us fund Africa's a Country in general. So to talk about today's program and to help us unpack in some parts Nawal al-Sadawi's legacy, as well as to reflect on the legacy of the Arab Spring, we are very excited to welcome our first guest, who is Nahal al-Assa, who's an Egyptian independent researcher currently based in London. And you can follow her on Twitter at not underscore Nehal. And we had advertised Amar Jamal to join us on this episode as well. But unfortunately, some last minute complications have meant that he's unable to be here today. So Nahal, we are absolutely grateful to have you on today. I, I, I know you said we shouldn't mention it, but I think it's just too auspicious of a fact to ignore that it is also your birthday, which coincides. I have no part in this. I want to make it clear. I, I, I it's no part in this. I just think it is important to mention, um, and truly, you're going to be channeling his spirits today. But to get on to, to what we want to ask you about, I, I suppose, by way of a first question, I want to ask what did the Arab Spring mean to you then when it happened? Were you around? And if so, how did you experience it? I mean, for me, it was very much so like my first instance of political awakening. Um, I was 17 then. I wouldn't say I was part of the revolution because I only went like one day, but I remember voraciously reading tweets and uh, Facebook posts, what was considered like citizen journalism um, and what was the true coverage of the 
protests, in my opinion. Um, I don't know, it just opened the way for me to think that another way was possible, whereas I'd previously, previously just internalized the message that we were given that like, oh, this area of the world is ruled by authoritarian dictators. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is the first time I thought that, yeah, maybe we don't, we don't have to abide by the status quo. Um, I was witnessing the democratic conversations that were happening and it was truly like, um, truly one of the, I, I feel like one of the best moments I had politically in my life. Mm -hmm. Even Would though you... I was like a part of it, I wouldn't say I was a part of it. See, we opened the floodgates, now people are wishing <laughs> your birthday. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the sort of follow-up question to that is perhaps to ask you and, and you know, is it, is it correct to say that, because when people now look back at that great, you know, kind of moment, in some cases, very brief in some countries, in others, right, it, it, we, we want to ask in a minute about Tunisia after this question, but, um, you know, it was a very brief moment and then and regimes went back in some cases to authoritarianism, in others they resulted in, you know, civil war, uh, in others they, they resulted in, in kind of um, a lot of repression again. But here's the question, is it correct to say that the Arab Spring, the so-called Arab Spring failed? And if that's the case, why, what are some of the factors that you think it couldn't sustain itself? In general, if you're thinking about over the region. Yeah, I mean, that is a really good question. Um, if you take a bird's eye view, let's say at Egypt, um, the current regime has total control over all governmental institutions and the media. The crackdown is worse than ever. Um, there are over 60,000 political prisoners in jail. Uh, but I think we should go beyond defeat as the main event of the revolution, because if we see a revolution as a process, then I think what failed was the revolution taking power, but the overarching defeat created waves of political and social transformations that I would say changed Egypt forever, uh, changes for the worse and for the better. Um, but contrary to the popular narrative, I don't think things went back to the way they were before, because this implies we're on the same trajectory, that we're on the same line going back and forth. Um, I would, I think that we're in a whole different terrain. Um, like January set in place some drastic changes that were not linear. Um, and we need to understand those changes to see what is happening now. For example, um, the first part, for example, like January succeeded in Egypt in ending Mubarak's project of grooming, giving um, Egypt to his son, Gamal, and not only his son, but handing it over to the business class and fully entrenching the neoliberal changes that had been started before him by Sadat. Um, that project failed. We don't know if it would have been better than military rule, but uh, it's not what we have. Um, I think another area that January succeeded is it created a vocabulary of, eman of emancipation that we use to this very day. Uh, and it gave us a lens through which we can talk about and discuss what is happening, what is going on. So I think we could see, we can consider what happened as a, start as a starting point that changed the hist historical trajectory of Egypt and the wider region. And we can think about how it can inspire us moving forward. And um, to, back to the title of this talk, um, 
if we say that the revolution is deferred, would we even want to complete it as it was? I think if you ask the people who are at the front and center of these um, revolutions or uprisings, I think they'd probably say they would take a different approach. They wouldn't continue on the same path. And who who was at the front and center of these protests, not thinking just of the individuals that spearheaded it, but broadly trying to understand what was the class character of the Arab Spring, which granted would probably be, be different across the region, but something that I've often realized is that I'm quite ignorant about who the primary constituency of the Arab Spring as a whole was. Yeah, so, I mean, an accumulation of dissent led up to 2011. Um, in Egypt, there was a general strike in 2008 that was started in like industrial working class stronghold Mahalla that made its way to, Tah to Tahrir. Um, sorry, not to Tahrir, but to Cairo. Um, but these protests weren't seen as overtly political. They were seen as economic protests, but like they paved the way up to 2011. Um, but the special thing or the peculiar, like I wouldn't, no one would say that the image of the, that 2011 had like this pristine image of a revolution led by the working class. That wasn't true. Um, there was no one group, no one character, um, not one class that like con that were considered the primary constituency of the revolution um there are a lot of i mean that is that is shown through the slogan red freedom and social justice you can see how there were economic demands there were political demands and there were demands for social justice um and that was um that made itself manifest in Tahrir Square itself when you could see there, there were these open democratic conversations being had by all of these different groups and they were made public and um, there were talks, there were like symposiums happening in the square in a very democratic way. And I think that was the special character of those 18 days that the wider uh, public and like people around the world saw as very special. Sean, you're you're on mute. As as this is this always happens, Sean. You really the absent-minded professor. No. <laughs> so my my follow-up question to that is: so initially, of course, as you said, it was it uh, you know this it's the square for people. There are all these different demands. But what clearly then emerges is that there's one group that that began to take a lead. Um, and eventually they would, when there's an election, they would come to power. How does one explain kind of that, like the role of political Islam? And I mean, of course, we, we, the specific example here is Egypt, right? Where the brotherhood um, emerges as the, as kind of the major political formation and they come to power. In the same way, there's also, and maybe it would be interesting to contrast that, in Tunisia, there's also Islamic parties or Islamist parties who, who get most of the votes, they also come to power. And we see two different kinds of things. Like we see almost, if you want, like two different processes playing out. Can you can you just say a little bit about, about that nature of, of something that was part of the part of the politics of the of the spring? Yeah, so 
in Egypt, for example, in a country like Egypt, there has been an erosion of opposition for decades and decades um, that even that maybe even started with Nasser with there not being, well, not him not allowing leftists to emerge other than the main party. Um, under Sadat, Sadat actually gave rise to allowed the Muslim Brotherhood to exist to overpower the Nasserists and push down the Nasserists, which is funny because they ended up killing him. Um, <laughs> and then um, afterwards, this continued with Mubarak. Um, Muslim Brotherhood were still given political currency in a way that other political currents like Nasserists and leftists were not. And even if the, the state kept a close eye on them, uh, put them in prisons and stuff, but they were still allowed to exist in a way that other uh, political organizations weren't. So in the lead up to the revolution, then when we come to the revolution, we have all of these people in the square with differing political opinions, um, but we have one group that is organized and that is the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so when um, sudden elections happen, elections that happen after a very short period of time with no organization um, and no one else that has like a name that has made a name for themselves like the Muslim Brotherhood, then it's not surprising that the Muslim Brotherhood take power. And what were you, I mean, if you, if you want, what was different from Tunisia then? Like why, why in Tunisia do you have like a different outcome around Islamic parties? I mean, of course, I'm, I'm kind of preempting it. It does have to do with certain po local political conditions, you know, uh, yeah. not making the same kind of mistakes, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can't claim to speak about um, Tunisia, uh, to know about Tunisia. I only know that um, in Egypt, like democratic parties weren't allowed to exist. Um, and that's why it was easier for the Muslim Brotherhood to ascend to power. Mm -hmm. Just uh, one quick, 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 quick other follow-up to this uh, before we, because I know Will has, is eager to ask something else. But on the just on the Brotherhood quickly, one of the things about the Brotherhood's legacy is like so they, Egypt has you know military uh, dictators if you want authoritarian. Uh, you know they have Nasser, Sadat, Mubarak. Then you have this like brief. I think it was like one year in which you have democratic rule. What's interesting for me is, and it's sort of when you read it, it, it kind of it's 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 um it's surprising to see people uh, viewing that one year of democracy under Morsi not in such a great light. Um, even though people now recognize that under Sisi there has been you know Sisi has been terrible, even worse apparently than Mubarak when it comes to imprisoning people, repression, so on but that Morsi and democracy does not have a good, it doesn't have a good legacy. Can you just like, for an outsider who's sort of watching that, why is that the case? I mean, they're like, what do you think about democracy here? Because there are competing ideas of democracy. And if we're speaking about a dem democracy from a very shallow sense of like the ballot box, mm -hmm. even that wasn't really achieved because if you, only give like a short period of time before elections. Um, what was really democratic about the square was the conversations happening on the ground, not the ballot box. 
but even before that, like the Muslim Brotherhood, if you ask anyone that was that participated in the revolution at the time, the Muslim Brotherhood betrayed the revolution even before they ascended to power, like even before Morsi became president. Um, like a very badly kept secret is that the Muslim Brotherhood made deals with the military. So they like we can't really separate them from the state as exists right now. Um, when the Muslim brother, when Morsi ascended to power, they, um, they, he handed the military a lot of powers in the 2012 constitution. Uh, they didn't turn their backs on the military when they ascended to, to, to power. Um, and another thing was that it was clear when Morsi was elected that he was speaking to his own constituency. He didn't try to appeal to the wider public. His speeches didn't resonate with anyone. It alienated people who are even agnostics and who are willing to give this project a try. Um, and to be honest, like the what was felt on the ground was that his ascension to power actually emboldened radical Islamists who were in Egypt the same way Trump's ascendancy to power emboldened racists in the US. Uh, so for example, my mother would be walking, this, this actually happened, my mother would walk in the street and someone would tell her, oh, you can't walk like this anymore because she's not veiled, you know? Uh, and this will, hap this will stop happening. Um, his uh, presidency um, caused a lot of like, threat was threatening to minorities like Coptic Egyptians who were not at all um, supportive of Morsi or women. Um, and like in the constitutional declaration of November 2012, he granted himself free reign in determining the enemies of the state and the revolution. Um, so when um, 30th of June happened, yes, it was a coup. Yes, it was a counter revolution, but it also had massive popular support because um, we, people really felt that political Islam was not like the project of political Islam had failed. Mm. It was, and it was not representative of the square in any way. So to ask about something that I think has sort of been shadowing the conversation so far, I want to know about today's sort of, I don't know if political confusion is the right word, but what we've been speaking to, which is the lack of any political group in Egypt specifically, but I suppose you could generalize it to the region as well as the continent, the lack of a political group that can sort of claim its place as representing some kind of universal interest that can sort of claim its place as representing a well-formed political subject. Has, do you think that that is a result of the collapse of Nasserism and the fact that comparable hegemonic projects organized around an anti-colonial figure across the continent have collapsed basically. Uh, and I think what is, what is interesting is that what all of them sort of did was all internal conflict during their time was subordinated to the question of the nation. So the contradictory interests between political groups were set aside towards some nationalist project and do you think that the collapse of that nationals project has led to a lot of people being in the wilderness today in terms of trying to discern what should come next? Yeah, I mean, 
Nasserism was a popular anti-colonial anti-colonial project. There was a society that felt it was part of something with the anti-colonialism that was happening, anti-imperialism, supports of Palestine. Um, it, it was a unifying aspect. Today, there's no political project <laughs> at all. Um, Nasserism became Nasserism because of the popular support of the population, not only the working class, um, even though the support of the working class is what gave it its designation anti-colonial resistance spoke to the working class, even if some people would argue that he was speaking for the working class. Um, but right now, like, there's no unifying political projects that would, um, there's only repression, basically. So there are, there are holes in the CC regime, but the problem is um, <laughs> maybe the opposition is quite defeated. Um, especially with um, the oppression, the, the severe crackdown that's happening right now. Um, I mean, there's st there are still moments of spontaneity that are happening, like in 2018, when metro ticket prices were raised, people took to the streets. Um, 2019, um, when military, when former military, a former military contractor released some YouTube videos highlighting military corruption. People took to the streets again in very scattered pro protests. Um, I mean, like to use Leninist terms, the spontaneity is there, but there's no organization. Um, I really don't know what the answer is here, but um, there are definitely moments of political resistance that make themselves manifest, even forms of dissent on Facebook uh, surrounding the building of infrastructure on heritage sites. Um, so there is some moments of dissent still, but we still very much lack the organization. So is it is it mostly that if there are if you want breaks or disputes among if you want like the ruling class or the ruling elites or as you say like a military contractor exposes corruption and then that leads to protest. So because I, the follow-up question, which you sort of answered, was like I was going to go like. Where do you see alternative politics to revive the politics of the square? And you were you, you you sort of said already you don't think so. Yeah, but I mean, like <laughs> over the past decade, the politics of the square has been the best alternative, <laughs> better than military rule, better than political Islam, better than anything we've seen. Um, there there must be some way to revive it. <laughs> But we, 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 it's, it's a wait and see. I mean, there's interesting stuff happening next door, I mean, right? I, uh, I mean, yeah, to quote Rosa Luxemburg, the ultimate victory can be prepared only by a series of defeats, right? <laughs> right, right. That's, that's, and, uh, what that's what I'm hoping. And, and in any case, I mean, there's interesting stuff happening. You know, one of the things, Egypt is kind of a major kind of regional power, right? It's a, it's yeah. a fact of like where Egypt goes, you know, the sort of like that kind of politics others can also go. But we are noticing that there's there's all these, there's been these protests in Algeria yeah. uh, to the, the fall of, well, it's not necessarily the fall, but a kind of setback for the Bouteflika regime, like he had to go. Um, similarly in Sudan, we saw um, Al-Basir is now gone. So there's, there's interesting things that are happening in the region politically to suggest that, you know, something, something will give. Yeah. Hopefully that's what we can hope for, right?
Yep, we can always we can always end on hope. Anyway, stick around. We hope, hopefully we you don't go, you don't leave because we're now being joined by um, uh, Zakaria Mampili, who is the Marx Endowed Chair of International Affairs at the School of Public and International Affairs at Baruch College, uh, which is part of the the City University of New York. And as we mentioned at the start, uh, Zakaria also wrote a 2015 book with Adam Branch called Africa Uprising, Popular Protests and Political Change. And I want to open by this uh, reading something from that text, Zakaria, where you wrote that quote, from Egypt to South Africa, Nigeria to Ethiopia, a new force for political change is emerging across Africa, popular protests, widespread urban uprising by youth, the unemployed, trade union, activists, writers, artists, and religious groups are challenging injustice in, and inequality, unquote. And you ask then, what is driving this new wave of protests? Um, is it the key to uh, substantive um, political change? So if we can start with that question, if we ask you that question today, uh, what would your, your answer be? Yeah, well, th thank you all for having me. And it's really wonderful to be here with Nihal, especially. Uh, really interesting to hear her analysis of what's happening in Egypt and elsewhere. Um, you know, I think the, the question is uh, a couple ways to answer it, right? So first, obviously, you know, what's happening in North Africa as well as in many other parts of Africa, uh, there are very many uh, specific dynamics to these. Uh, it's a very diverse continent. Many countries have distinctive politics. And that's why I think it's really important to to listen to people on the ground who who have a, a real clear sense of what's happening, um, you know, within each of these struggles. Uh, what I would say, though, is that there are also common uh, dynamics that are, you know, uh, shaping much of the continent in the 21st century, and that these also play a big role in, in, in fueling the kind of uprisings that we've seen from Cairo to South Africa, uh, which is, you know, the way in which Africa, African countries have been incorporated into the global economic and political systems. Um, and that, I think, is producing a number of very specific contradictions and tensions uh, that have really fueled this ongoing uh, surge of uprisings that have, you know, now stretched into their second or even third decade. So uh, my sense of it is that, you know, if I had to answer the question, it's, it's that the many of the same dynamics that were present in 2015 uh, when we wrote the book are, are still present today and are likely to be present into into the next few years, at least because, you know, what's happening uh, both politically and economically, which are obviously very interrelated, um, are producing these very fundamental tensions between this really aging, older, uh, ruling class who are tied to uh, these economic and political systems, and uh, a younger generation like Nihal's age, uh, who are really pushing back uh, against these political systems uh, and are asking for a type of change in their economics and politics that are fundamentally at odds with the ruling elite. And so as long as that tension remains, uh, I suspect we'll continue to see these uprisings going forward. Just, just a quick follow, just sorry, Will, just a quick follow on, where did you, because you write this book kind of like four years after Tahrir, well, it comes out like four, four or five years after Tahrir Square. Where did, Were there any places where you saw like a direct connection between people south of the Sahara kind of taking a lead from what they, what they saw in, in Tunisia, what they saw in Egypt? Oh, absolutely. I think that was the main motivation for writing the book. So I was current, at the time based at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Uh, I was teaching there as a Fulbright Fellow, and, and my co-author, Adam Branch, uh, was a senior research scholar at the Makarela Institute for Social Research in Uganda. 
Uh, and so the entire motivation for the book was 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 sort of just looking around the regions that we were inhabiting um, and seeing you know mass up, uprisings taking place. This is 2012, 2013, so shortly in the wake of, of the Arab Spring. Uh, and in Uganda, especially, there were the walk to work protests that were going on at that time. Um, and they were very explicitly invoking the memories of, of Tahrir Square and calling for a version of Tahrir Square to unfold in Uganda at the time. And that was not unusual in, in other parts of Africa. And so we sort of started having these conversations asking, uh, why is it that nobody is paying attention to what's happening in, in so many parts of Africa uh, when it seems like this is is quite a, a common phenomenon? And as we document in the book, you know, between that period of 2005 and 2014, uh, we saw these mass uprisings in, in over 40 African countries. So, um, you know, I think that the name, the Arab Spring, is, is very much a misnomer um, that is sort of designed to uh, obfuscate what was actually happening across the continent throughout this period. And I mean, one one thing that I want to ask, and Nahal, feel free also to jump in whenever you want to, is is how do all of these groups, diversified as they are in their local conditions, how do they articulate the grievances against the system? And you mentioned that this long stretch of uprising is now in its third decade. How has that changed? How has that varied? And what are the the common patterns? Because um, I think it's not only it's not only localized to the continent, but it's also uh, across the world. And as you have alluded to, they all invoke the language of the square, and whether it's the square in Tahrir, whether it's the square in Washington Park in New York, there's a similarity between how these protests create themselves. Yeah, if you don't, if you indulge me for a minute, I mean, what I could say is, looking back historically, you know, I think this is very much. Um, related to the quote by Walter Rodney that you guys put up at the, at the beginning of this session, um, you know, which has to do with the nature of the class alliances that led to the independence of most African countries in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, you know, if you look back to those anti-colonial struggles, one pattern that was very clear is that in many countries, including places like Tanzania, but also places like Ghana most prominently, um, they were able to bring together a wide variety of constituencies uh, usually under the, the rubric of these sort of revolutionary anti-colonial nationalist parties. So in Ghana, uh, you have Nkrumah um, with the Convention People's Party, and he really did bring together a, a wide variety of different constituencies. One of his main uh, sources of support were the urban youth, um, you know, what were then referred to as the Miranda Boys. These were young men who were mostly unemployed, who uh, hung out in colonial Accra, uh, and were a real threats to British desire to maintain order in their colonies. Uh, he also had strong support amongst the chiefs in the rural areas, so he had he was able to tap into uh, the Ghanaian peasantry and, of course, you know, more educated elites in in Accra itself, um, who were kind of the leadership of the CPP. So. What he did in Ghana, what Nyerere was able to do in Tanzania, what many of the nationalist figures were able to do uh, was to bring together these very disparate uh, coalition of groups, uh, many who had uh, interests that were directly at odds with each other, uh, and unite them within the auspices of the political party. Right? Um, and I think as Rodney is discussing you know, just a, a few years after this great independence, um, moment um, it reflects kind of the, the the limitations of that model, and you know Rodney was able to say like yes, these were broad nationalist mobilizations that that truly did represent an uprising of the people against colonial domination. But very quickly, uh, and we saw this certainly in Ghana and also in Tanzania and elsewhere, 
um, the ruling elites who were at the head of these political parties and the main beneficiaries uh, of their actions set about demobilizing the very same constituencies that brought them to power. So from Ghana to Tanzania, you see uh, you know, crackdowns on oppositions, hostilities towards unions, uh, you know, uh, suppression of student and professor activism, um, harsh treatment of the peasantry, uh, kind of ambiguous attitudes towards the traditional authorities. Um, and so I think that much of the post-independence history in Africa has been this sort of protracted process of disillusionment with not only ruling parties, but eventually in the 90s, when you start to see democratization uh, of the opposition parties as well, because so many of them are, are constituted by these narrow elites uh, who use the, the rhetoric of, of, of nationalism, um, but fundamentally are operating in, 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 in more individualistic uh, manners. And so I think what we're witnessing now, and I think how sort of referencing this in the Egyptian example, uh, is that on one side you have these organized political parties and other social forces, and then you have the masses, right? Uh, and unlike these earlier periods of, of, of mobilization, um, the, the, the tensions between those constituencies have become too great to resolve simply within a, a political party. Right. Um, and I think that's what we keep running into over and over uh, with these different uprisings, that they're able to draw just huge numbers of people out into the streets. But then there are very few channels through which you can mobilize and, and actually represent uh, those interests uh, in the democratic process. And as long as that tension remains, and I think really here I want to emphasize that this is a failure of the political parties, um, uh, I think we are going to continue to see this kind of um, lack of organization, lack of a clear vision, lack of clear demands that, that many of these protests have been, have been critiqued for. Nahal, would you want to add anything? Um, no, I mean, Zachariah encapsulated what I think perfectly. Yeah, I'm, I'm still like grappling with these questions myself as well. And I think that's the task, that's our task right now to figure out. And I want to, that's that's absolutely right, and I think one person that I whose work I'm finding increasingly interesting on on sort of reflecting on the leaderless, spontaneous, and horizontalist nature of these mobilizations is the Amer Iranian American scholar Asef Bayat, and he sort of has this kind of description of them as constituting uh, revolutions without revolutionaries. Uh, and his work was appropriated in a, in a recent a journal intervention by this one British communist journal, EndNotes, which turned it the other way around and said that actually we're not confronting uh, production of revolutions without revolutionaries, but what we are witnessing is uh, re uh, revolutionaries without uh, revolution. So, I mean, this feels like it's a a historical process that is not only implicating the continent, but the entire left wing in general, ever since the defeat of the working class that arose with, with neoliberalism. So, yeah, I'm just curious on, on whether or not you think Bayat's sentiment is, is correct and, and taking us in the right direction. I mean, to some degree, it seems like there is some, some agreement, but is there anything that you'd contest in, in his appraisal? I mean, I think it's, you know, we're getting into the weeds a little bit here in terms of how we might imagine these, these uprisings unfolding versus the reality of what's actually uh, going on on the ground, right? And so, um, you know, I like Bayat's work very much and it influences my own thinking on this. But I think that there's also a way in which we are looking for uh, older models of, of revolution 
um, in places that maybe we shouldn't uh, insist that they adhere to those patterns. And, and part of this is a, is a question of political economy, right? So I think for most of us who, who are influenced by, say, a Marxist interpretation, um, you know, we are very much looking for kind of this revolutionary urban proletariat to take the lead uh, and, 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 and guide the revolution as it, as it moves forward. And I think, you know, if we look at what's been happening in Africa over, say, the past two, three decades, uh, that's very hard to, to reconcile in terms of, you know, the larger economic changes that have been unfolding across the continent. And I think most dramatically, as, you know, in Africa and elsewhere in the world, um, has been the, the dramatic decline in, in union organizing, um, in traditional labor politics, um, in, 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 in really the, ex the existence of an industrialized uh, urban labor force altogether, right? So just to give you one example, um, you know, as a result of all of the uh, foreign investment that has come into African countries since the 1990s and the 2000s, largely from China and other Asian economies, um, most of that money has been directed towards uh, extracting resources uh, from the rural areas, right? And so sort of contra uh, what economic theory might lead us to believe, it has not actually produced a, a broad industrialization of African economies. Uh, Kenya, for example, was actually more industrial, had a larger share of its em workers employed in the industrial sector in the 1980s than it does today. Um, and that's not that difficult to to see if you spend time in, in, in African countries um, where you, you know that most of the growth is being driven by these very extractive uh, uh, practices that are targeted primarily at, 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 at gaining access to African resources. Um, and as such, you know, we have seen a, a corresponding decline in the relevance of, of the traditional industrial politics. And so I think part of our challenge for those of us who are not in Africa and who are coming from kind of a more internationalist left uh, perspective is, is not to keep imposing this idea that, you know, we should look simply towards the urban unions uh, for leadership over these protests. They are not at the forefront of these protests. Um, you know, sometimes they are involved with them, uh, but there is a huge age gap in terms of, you know, the, the, the average membership of people who are participating in union politics. Uh, most of the unions have no representation in the more rural areas where much of this economic activity is going on. Um, and it is unlikely that they will be at the forefront of uprisings going forward, though they do have a very important role to play uh, if we think about these um, uh, movements as, as, as working to, to bring together a very diverse set of, of economic actors into uh, a broad-based coalition. So part of it, and this is the final point I'll make here, is that you know, we need to, to recognize uh, you know, the, the lack of a clear ideological uh, uh, approach to understanding what's happening here. Many of the people who are involved in the protests are, are not anti-capitalist, right? What they are calling for is less a, a socialist revolution of the sort that I'm discussing here, um, but a more equitable form of capitalism, right? And, and that may not comport with our own kind of politics of how, how we think about the protest. Um, but the reality is I think many of the people who are involved actually just want capitalism and neoliberal politics to be more equitable. Now we can have a debate about whether that's possible uh, under capitalism, but that is clearly what they are calling for. Um, and there is this gap between, I think, our desire to, to see uh, this as a kind of proto-socialist uh, revolutionary moment uh, and the reality of what's actually motivate, motivating people to take to the streets. Sean, you are, you're on mute. <laughs> and I'm, I mute myself because there's construction outside, so every time they do that, then I mute myself. No, I was just going to say, um, unless Nihal wants to 
to add something, I, I think it's interesting that um, if you look at, say, like somebody like Margot Fooley, what, what you're describing is actually exactly what happened there, which is the excitement around Margot Fooley was he went after that part of the economy, which was like the, you know, where the action was, which is the extractive industries. And he went after the multinational corporations. So there is this thing, if you, if you listen to people in Tanzania, like activists, analysts, you know, local analysts, they'll point to that contradiction. They'll point to the fact that this guy was very popular, that he was definitely very popular among rural people, that the, the CCM had a social base. And even if he was using, it's the same with Museveni, even if they are using methods to prevent people from voting and, you know, repressive measures, they also have some kind of popularity. They do have popularity. In the case of Museveni, there are older people for whom they see Museveni as ending violence, as providing a means for them to have some kind of livelihood. So they side with him. But I wanted to just ask a sort of, to, to get onto what you're sort of talking about, Zach, somebody in the comments mentioned Yanamar and Senegal is in the news. And I know you, you have written about, part of you, you've written about Yanamar, which is, that's, a, that's, that's an interesting case there, for example, where you have Yanamar brought to power Makisal. Like they were, they brought to power Makisal um, and they were that kind of movement that funding organizations like because they spoke in that kind of urban language of the West. Like, and it turns out now, I think they're not, they're kind of missing in action with the current uh, set of protests. I think they're there, but they're not, they don't have that same kind of influence that they may have had. And actually the group that have been really powerful in a way in managing the energies of people is, 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 the, is the, are the religious people. You know the 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 murids, like the brotherhoods, like their power in telling people to sort of cool off and uh, 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 you know not go every day against Maki and like like I think interestingly they have more power. So your point, I, I really I really like your point of saying it's easy for us to say let's look at trade unions at these sort of social movements that we used to look at and not asking these other kinds of questions. Just one other quick point on this, like in South Africa, for example. The, the trade union movement is the strongest in the public sector, and those are not those are workers who are who want pensions and who are entering the middle class. It's not the same as those industries that got sort of killed off, like the textile industry um, or other industry. I mean, can you just, if you want, do you want to make a quick comment on the on the on the question of say Yanamar, if you if you don't mind? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, first I, was, I would I would contest a little bit about Yanamar being missing in action. I I, I know the some of the leaders of Yanomar, and, and they have been very much out in the streets. Um, a number of the key figures in Yanomar, like Thiat, uh, who is a rapper who was one of the founders of the organization, was arrested very early on in protests. Um, and you know they are very much active as part of these protests. But I want to make a, a slightly different point because I think um, you know one of the things that that we often do is we sort of want to accelerate the timeline for how the social movements can produce change, right? And I think one of the things that I've, I've been I've liked about how Yanomar has approached um, you know, the political struggle in Senegal uh, is that they have always had a long-term vision. So you know, as as Sean mentioned, you know. Yanomar is largely responsible for sort of clearing the political space that allowed the current president, Macky Sall, to come to power in the first place. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, Macky Sall's regime reached out to many of the leaders in Yanomar and, and offered them positions in government, um, which they uniformly decided that they did not want to do because they understood that it was important for the social movement to re remain autonomous from the state uh, and that there was going to be work uh, to do even with uh, 
with the rise of a, of a new regime in that country. And I think that they have been proven absolutely correct uh, in terms of their assessment. So they've had this longer term vision. I think that, you know, if you look at it historically, um, most historical social movements, you know, whether we're talking about the civil rights movement in the United States or the anti-colonial struggles in Africa and Asia, uh, these were decade long struggles, right? Sometimes generational struggles. I mean, you know, in South Africa, uh, you know, several generations of certain families were involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and I think Yanomar and other groups in, in, on the continent, after uh, achieving a lot of early success, uh, are also now recognizing that this is a long-term, potentially decades-long uh, process, uh, and that they sort of need to dig in for the long run. So I take a lot of sort of heart from people like Michal, um, you know, who obviously was quite young when when the Egyptian uprising happened, but has um, has clearly understood that that, that was a transformative moment, uh, and that the struggle continues even as it sort of fails to to garner attention, right? And I think the big point that we know as social scientists. Uh, is that countries that transition to democracy after a protracted period uh, of social mobilization end up actually having much deeper forms of democracy. So in some ways, you know, I know it's disheartening not to see more success for many of these movements, but on another level, uh, empirically speaking, you know, it, ultimately when these movements do triumph, uh, they are likely to bring about the kind of true people's democracy, uh, deeper forms of democratization than the kind of superficial electoralism that has defined much of African democracy thus far. So, you know, all I can say as an outsider is, you know, to the activists on the ground, keep doing what you're doing. I, I know it's very, very disheartening, um, but especially for those of us outside, like we can't rush to judgment uh, about the long-term prospects of these movements because I think we are still in the early days. Uh, and, you know, as this generation continues to grow within the movement, um, I think it's yet to be seen what they will ultimately accomplish. Mm. I think you're you're absolutely right. And what I want to reflect on now is just trying to sort of zoom in on what we think the trajectories of these political developments might be. And I think that you're right. On the one hand, there's this generation of young people, which include folks like Nahal and myself. You're digging who, in this all day, Nahal. <laughs> I mean, the point is that burning on you, burning on you is going to be nuts. It's not a, it's not on us. It's not on us. I just say that up front. I, I deny any responsibility for being in the forefront. But, but there's this group of young people that received their political awakening in the period between sort of 2010 and 2016 across the world, and they're now entering a period where I think that a lot of these mobilizations, which sort of dissipated very quickly in South Africa, the one I can point to is the fees must fall protests. Those are starting to reemerge, but those are reemerging with a very different character where people are connecting, for example, the crisis of higher education to the general crisis of austerity. They're connecting that to the state's repressive apparatus foremost of which is the police and the brutality that it visits upon everyone. So those connections are starting to be made. And I think that's something that we're starting to, to witness. And I think, uh, Zachary, you're totally right that we shouldn't sort of be in a rush to see where they might take us. But what I want to contrast with and what I want to hear from everyone, what we make of this is something that happened elsewhere in the global south, which I think sort of encapsulates what you were talking about earlier, which is being rooted in a rural politics. And I want to talk about what's happened in India, which is this 
tremendous mobilization, uh, which was able to sort of bring these disparate groups together of smallholder farmers, of middle to large scale farmers, of parts of India's urban middle class, and was able to articulate a sort of, uh, I don't know what the word for it is, but a sort of national interest in, in the sense of wanting to, to prevent uh, Modi's government from neoliberalizing India's agricultural sector. And it wasn't only a matter of it being the interest of the landless farmer, but also for the middle class uh, city dweller who might access more expensive food if this was to go through. So I suppose, I don't know what the question is exactly, but I suppose it's something along the lines of when it comes to these protest mobilizations, as far as strategy is concerned for the left, what sort of poll do we think is best positioned to mount a serious challenge to capital as it is organized in today's power structure, as it is as it exists today um and and if if as the left when we reflect on where to invest our energy and where to invest our time where should that be i mean i think it's a it's a great question right and it's a question that has been asked many times before which is you know what role does the rural play in the popular uh, in popular movements and especially in, in urban uprisings right and generally we tend to think of social movements and popular protests as, as predominantly an urban phenomenon. But when you're talking about a country like India, uh, where something like 60% of the people live in rural areas, uh, that's the same actual average for African countries as well. Something like 60% of Africans live in rural areas. Some countries like Uganda or Central African Republic, obviously it's much higher. Uh, but on average, you know, India and most African countries are roughly comparable in the sense that something like almost two thirds of the population continues to live in these rural spaces. And can you have a mass mobilization that fundamentally excludes the, the rural areas? To go back again to the anti-colonial struggles, what made them so effective was that they were able to bridge this urban-rural divide and to bring in to these popular uprisings uh, a large number of, of peasant movements. Um, you know, similarly, I think in 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 the 90s when you had uprisings uh, across much of West Africa. Uh, there was a lot of participation of rural populations, which made them very effective. And even in the kind of kind of third wave of protests that is currently going on, um, you know, some of the most successful movements, like the movement in Sudan, uh, really was successful because it moved outside of Khartoum. I mean, many of these regimes are, are very sophisticated uh, in terms of controlling the urban space, right? And historically, the the assumption was that you control the urban space through through massive displays of, of, of coercion, uh, and you rely on sort of traditional chiefs to to keep the rural areas uh, subdued, right? And I think again to come back to the, the broader economic and political context in which all of this is unfolding, one of the key things that I'm working on currently um, is this sort of question of, of of what happens to the rural spaces amidst these transformative changes in African economies, right? And on one very level, I mean. I'd shout out, you know, my my uh, co-author, my Nisreen El Amin, who's a Sudanese scholar, um, who has done a lot of work, for example, on Gulf investments into the Sudanese land sector, right? Uh, and that's a very common dynamic where you have these foreign countries coming in and buying up huge pieces of land across Africa's rural areas. What is that actually doing to the demographics of African countries? Well, it's pushing um, rural young people off of their land. It's breaking the bonds between the traditional authorities uh, and these rural populations. Many of them will move into the urban areas. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, they're not uh, 
complacent uh, or subdued as a result of kind of pressure from traditional authorities, but they too now are, are experiencing tremendous disruptions produced by these larger economic shifts uh, that actually makes them kind of the ideal population uh, to mobilize, you know, uh, nationally. So if we look at again what's happening in India, now, there have been many attempts amongst, say, the middle classes in India to protest uh, sort of the right word drift in Indian politics, and they've largely come up empty. Right. I think what's so extraordinary about the, the farmers' protests, which are now considered to be the largest protests in the history of the world, um, is that they did begin in the rural areas uh, uh, around some fairly sophisticated economic questions, specifically the attempt by the government uh, to liberalize the agricultural sector. Right? Uh, and these are very similar dynamics, I think, to what we are seeing in many African countries where you have this, again, to bring it back to Sean's point, combination of a kind of conservative African nationalism alongside uh, a neoliberal economic policy uh, that is fundamentally disrupting, you know, the, the nature of, of social life in the rural areas. And I think that is going to emerge as, as perhaps the, the key uh, X factor uh, in determining the nature of, of future mobilizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to jump off of Zachariah's point as well, and to echo that and place it in the Egyptian context, we see economic development and economic and urban development happening at the expense of human rights, dispossession, resettlement, uh, breaking up of informal settlements, uh, the building of the new administrative capital, uh, sanitizing of Tahrir Square itself to make it as a space uh, impossible to protest there. Um, uh, so yeah, it's basically tr trying to make, um, trying to make physically congregating in the same space impossible. The, the, we, we, could, we, could, we could keep going. I saw Vincent yeah. Bevins um, ask the question, uh, so what's the blueprint um, for future movements? Um, um, I mean, but I think we've, we've sort of addressed some of that. We just, we just kind of worried about the time. Um, and I wanted to thank um, our two guests, uh, Nihal Alassar, um, and Zakaria Mampili for coming on today, and also to our producer, um, Antoinette Engel, not to give the, the young people another burden. Apparently, <laughs> this is your job uh, to go change the world for, for like old dudes like me right now with all the gray hair. Um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, again, we, we hope, hopefully we'll have both of you back. Uh, Another time. Thanks for coming on. This was uh, this was really wonderful. And also to all our viewers who are watching, uh, with the great comments, we appreciate you. We see a bunch of you coming back every week. Um, uh, I'm gonna just shout out one of them as David Hemson. I see you be you've been uh, uh, back every week. Praise to you, Marissa Morman. Also praise to you for coming back and and, and uh, listening every week. Um, yeah. So with that, I wanted to say thank you again, Nihal and Zakaria for. Uh, coming on and being so informative. This was this was really great breaking down, breaking down uh, the politics of of North Africa, specifically Egypt, and also south of the Sahara. So well done. Thank you very much, and we'll see the rest of you next week. For, uh, goodbye, also from Will, uh, my co-presenter. Thank, Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Thank you.